Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt, that music means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Every Friday in this hour, I sit down with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, or many of his colleagues, and we discuss things that matter. And once in a while, I have a good idea. Every three years or so, I come up with a good idea, and I'm claiming all credit for the Churchill as Writer series, uh, which began four weeks ago and about which I've heard many fine things from you out there. But leave it to the busy beavers of Hillsdale. They outdo me. Uh, give them a good idea, and they run with it. Over at hillsdale.edu, you're now going to find week-by-week uh, week outlines of what we're doing in the history of the equally-speaking people, the first one of which, uh, a sort of a study guide by Joseph Sturdy. Dr. Arn, do you have a legion of eager beavers who are ready to improve upon our product at every turn? Indeed, I do. Well, uh, Mr. One of the best Sturdy things done I've done a- in my life is turn almost all of the work at Hillsdale College, <laughs> over to the students. <laughs> well, I looked at this and I said, this is better than the podcast. If people start going to hillsdale.edu, they're not going to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogue. I want them to go after they listen yeah. to the Hillsdale Dialogue. So um, I am to, here today with you beginning our first hour on Volume 2 of the History of the English People. Have you heard from anyone about what they think about this? Uh, yeah, a lot of people. They, they, you, you've had a triumph, and I have learned something important from it. And I praised you once last week, and I'm going to praise you once more. That's, I'm done now. <laughs> you have had a triumph. You know, that's when you get to go through the city. If I come up to Rome, do I get a chariot to roll through the streets of Hillsdale? I mean, come up to Michigan, do I get to go through the streets of Hillsdale in a toga? No, that's all over now. That's not that too bad. <laughs> All right, let me go to book four. Second, there are uh, Volume two have books four, five, and six. Today we are focused on book four of Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People. Segment one that we are spending is on the Renaissance and the Reformation. Generally speaking, I'm a little bit stunned to see Winston Churchill credit Erasmus for uh, England emerging from the Dark Ages. What do you think about that, Dr. Art? Yeah, well, there are people who think that uh, Churchill doesn't do enough for Thomas More, who was Erasmus's friend, and in close communication with Erasmus. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know why he did that. Uh, the critics of this book, by the way, uh, the book is a masterpiece. I've decided that's what I've learned. I've learned I've learned that it is and why it is. Uh, and I, I probably had this thought a long time ago, but it's come back to me now. But the reason you criticize it is it's uh, uh, Churchill has not spent his life dwelling on all of the parts of this very long history. And so, you know, the, there's, there's a mountain to say about Erasmus and Thomas More. Uh, Thomas More was a close friend of Henry VIII, who cut his head off, and they sort of grew up together. And they wrote things in common that completely uh, forestalled what Henry eventually did, breaking with the church. 
and all that. Uh, Erasmus and Thomas More were, were reformers of the tr- church of the Catholic Church, but they were very loyal to it. Lost within it, well. and yeah, so uh, H- Henry, growing up, Henry was uh, Churchill's descriptions of Henry are awesome, and he was um, he was a force of nature. He, everything he did, he did big, and he gobbled up knowledge. He was very smart. He wrote a lot. And he wrote a lot with Thomas More, and he yes. wrote things uh, that he would belie when he cut Thomas More's head off. Well, this was a, it, it was, you know, they were young, and Erasmus was young, too. And so it was an intoxicating thing. They're going to, time in their lives, and they were young men, get intoxicated. And so they were going to fix the church. It's the greatest thing ever. It's the most important institution in human history. And we're going to repair it and make it knowledgeable and make it uh, honest. And it, it was... It was corrupt. Things well, it, it was, was corrupt. You know, Churchill, Churchill uh, it's, you know, it's easy to see. There's this, uh, this great thing about St. Francis with a pope, I can't remember the pope, uh, touring the Vatican. And uh, the pope took him down and showed him the gold. And the Pope said to Francis, we can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Francis replied, no, nor can we any longer say, rise up from thy bed and walk. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I want to pause for a moment on what you said. It's a masterwork. It's my fourth time through this, and every this time more than ever, because I've actually learned a lot from you and from Martin uh, Gilbert's books and from our friend across the land, Andrew Roberts is that it's Churchill talking to us about what Churchill cares about. It's not a comprehensive history. It's Churchill's view of history and how we got here. That's why I think it's a work of genius. Why do you think it's a work of genius? Uh, A related thing to that, but a little bit more specific. Uh, Churchill says, you know, Churchill was a very great man, as I often say. And in something that is one of his, in my opinion, is Churchill's two greatest books, are the World Crisis and the Marlboro. And the Marlboro overlaps extensively with this book that we're reading. Now. Oh, boy, does it ever. And, yeah. and you can see, by the way, how insightful and detailed and specific it is through all those years, because Churchill has really studied those years. But in the World Crisis, uh, that's, you know, that, the World Crisis is, uh, there's lots of jokes about how uh, it's autobiography uh, concealed as a history, <laughs> history, which is something like what you just said, but it isn't that. Uh, it, it's, it's Churchill in his full vigor. Uh, for example, Churchill learned to dictate books while he was writing The World Crisis. It was longhand before that. And so the pace picked up, and he really took to that. But above all, he had all the energy of youth and all the fire that comes from his first great disappointment in his life, which was the Dardanelles. And so he actually undertakes, and it's wonderful how he does it, to explain why that was a good idea, even though it failed. And to articulate that, he had to explain the whole situation of Britain as a phenomenon in yes. the world and the kind of great power it was. Yes. And so in, in, in volume two of that, 
he writes one of his most important paragraphs, and it's about how he writes history. Uh, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He says, uh, uh, gigantic forces often don't matter too much, he said, but along the pathway where footsteps are decisive, who knows when he may set a stone rolling or take or omit some seemingly unimportant step that changes everything. That uh, We should parse that out sometime because that's a commentary on art and chance. And how, because, you know, inadvertently set a stone rolling. And on the other hand, changes everything. And yet, the people who walk that pathway, they need prudence. They need to be able yeah, to see. I, I'm and reminded, Dr. Arn, uh, we're jumping ahead three weeks here. We'll come back to John Churchill. But at yeah. the end of this volume, John Churchill makes an appearance. And, Ch- and his descendant, Winston Churchill, says his sincerity of purpose and duplicity of method were equal. Deceit is inseparable from conspiracy. He is cold-eyed about John Churchill, but he also, that's one of those people whose footsteps change everything, and it is by chance that he's invited into the inner circle of James as a member of his guard. His father had been disgraced, the first Winston Churchill, and yet history, you said this some weeks ago, history throws up a Zelensky every now and then. Well, threw up John Churchill in time for the glorious revolution. Yeah. And, and that, see, and in the lives of those people and the events, which lives are profoundly affected by chance, Churchill says in that quote I was in the middle of, he says, he, he finishes, in them is found the, sub, uh, the profound significance of human choice and the sublime responsibility of men. Churchill writes history to display those turning points. It's akin to the way Solzhenitsyn wrote it, too. He says that, you know, he wrote several books oh, of history. interesting. And he called them knots, uh, K-N-O-T-S. Uh, moments when everything came together and how, how what proceeds from that changes everything. And so, you know, he wrote uh, those four books about the First World War, where Russia changed into Bolshevism and European civilization was destroyed. So that... That's what Churchill is doing, and and it's not just important to him. There's a reason why they're important to him. And we come back to that. Don't go anywhere, America, except over to Hillsdale.edu. If you want helpful notes, they are being published serially by our friends up at Hillsdale.com, Hillsdale.edu. behind America. This is volume two of Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People in the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. And Dr. Arn and I have already gotten off. Uh, If you look at the outline I sent you, we are now about 20 years behind. Uh, Henry Tudor uh, uh, beats Richard III, and the Tudor dynasty is established. Henry VIII comes along. But a word about Henry VII, because Churchill says he ranks with Lorenzo de' Medici in Florence, he worked almost always by adaptation, modifying old forms ever so slightly, rather than by crude innovation. How does that apply to your tenure at Hillsdale, now approaching, I don't know, forever? Yeah, forever. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the answer is, if I were to answer that question candidly, I would violate the rules under which Henry Seventh <laughs> proceeded. <laughs> Perfect. Elegantly done. So Henry VII doesn't get much due anywhere in history because Henry VIII is so large a figure. 
But he is really a remarkable character. Churchill said, remarkably shrewd picker of men. Few of his ministers came from the hereditary nobility. Many were churchmen. Almost all were of obscure origin. Any lessons there, Dr. Arn? Well, uh, you notice in the notes, your notes to me, and we will talk about it later, the summary of the life of the achievements of Henry VIII. And they are very similar to the achievements of his father. That is to say, it became a stronger, commercial, uh, broader-based society. Uh, the Navy had its influence on it that made it into a great trading nation. Uh, he, he was much more deaf than Henry VIII, who, who was so impulsive and so given to brute force that he cut off the heads of a bunch of good people. Like Henry VII, Henry VIII was advised chiefly by people who had been non-entities. And, and that's, if you, if you read the book, The Godfather? Yes. Uh, they, they both, father and son, the two godfathers in that great saga, they both pick people whose real basis is complete loyalty to them. And they pick them well. And, you know, they're lethal people. Uh, so, in other words, he, he figured out how to, uh, he wasn't just balancing the great powers. He did that, too, because they're great powers and they have to be balanced. But he got around him a group of people who were just for him, and then he could really work. And uh, that's if uh, Henry VIII had picked better, you know, because uh, you know he he most of his advisors he killed after they had given him, including well, he was going to kill Wolseley and he died, but then he did kill more and he did kill Cromwell. That's right, and see. Uh, Wolsey and Moore gave Henry better advice, although, unlike uh, Wolsey, Moore was not corrupt. And, and so, you know, there was a kind of a stability, and it was upset by various things. I mean, see, the, the larger story going on through this book is the two steps, the unity of United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That develops. That develops in this volume. It become, Great Britain is born when a Scottish man becomes king of England, too. Uh, and that's hard to unify that place. Indeed, there are fissures in it right now. They oh, may, yes. the, the Scots are going to vote again, see? And that's because they're, in some important respects, different places. And the, the difference between them in these volumes plays out through religion. Yeah, let, let me ask you about uh, a tendency of Churchill. He will occasionally go into a cul-de-sac. For example, Wolseley. He writes about how he dies and there's a hair shirt on that no one knew about. Uh, yeah. Why does he include details like that? Uh, to try and redeem... Even about Cromwell, he is of two minds. He knows he's an evil force and would have destroyed England's freedoms left unchecked. But he has to find time to say, but he was good to the Navy. It's sort of like what he says about James the Second and Charles the Second. They were good to the Navy. That's the practice in Churchill's uh, Great Contemporaries, which is an assembly of articles that, that Churchill wrote about famous, important people he knew. And it's amazing how he makes judgments about them. And the point is, he understands that practical people don't get to do perfect things. And so he's charitable. 
or generous. No, he is very charitable. That's why it's so winsome. Don't go anywhere. More on the fourth book of the history of the English-speaking people, volume two. Welcome back, America. It's time for the Hilldale Dialogue. Uh, Henry Tudor I uh, in 1485. His son, Henry VIII, takes over as king um, sometime around. I've got my dates mixed up. 1509, and he lasts for 38 years. Churchill says two things of him. To those who saw him often, Henry VIII seemed almost like two men. One, the merry monarch of the hunt and banquet and procession, the friend of children, the patron of every kind of sport. The other... A cold, acute observer of the audience chamber, a council watching, vigilantly weighing arguments, refusing, except under the stress of great events, to speak his own mind. And then at the end of the chapter, we must credit Henry's reign with laying a basis of sea power, with the revival of parliamentary institutions, with giving the English Bible to the people, and above all, with the strengthening of a popular monarchy under which succeeding generations worked together for the greatness of England, while France and Germany were racked with eternal strife. He almost always ends with charity, uh, Dr. Arn, in his assessment of people. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, I mean, every, uh, uh, Rich, Richard II, uh, the murderer, had qualities. And another thing is, if you don't cultivate that habit, the next thing you know, you'll be lopping off people's heads. Uh, Churchill gives to, some advice to his son, Randolph, when Randolph is sort of becoming a man. And he says to him at one point, you know, you should learn a lot because uh, you're going to need to know. And the second thing is, uh, don't be so, I, I can't remember the adjective he uses, but don't be so violent with people, you know, because the people are going to be around for a long time. Uh, you know, when we get old, you and I know, uh, we figure out that there's going to be some people around that you knew 30 years ago. And... They're still important, right? So try to remember that when you're growing up. And Churchill very much remembers that. Oh, very much. Uh, I also like, in fact, I often teach my con law students that they're not going to understand the First Amendment unless they understand the 16th and 17th century in Great Britain, because it's all about religion. And he very quickly moves through, after Henry died, Edward assumes the throne, then comes Mary, reverts to Catholicism, and then comes Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth with the Elizabethan settlement. Do you think he makes it accessible to the ordinary people? I think that's one of the geniuses of the work, is that people can finally figure out the religious wars in England right through uh, the Restoration. Yeah, I, I do very much, and I think he's, uh, I think that's a great theme in Churchill. And Churchill looks at religion from the point of view of a public man and from the point of view of somebody who doesn't think people ought to force people how to pray. And many of these disputes that led to upheavals and revolutions and thousands and thousands of deaths, they're about a difference of opinion about how to pray and under what structure to pray. So, you know, the, uh, the, you have the roundheads and the cavaliers, and the cavaliers are Catholic and stylish and high church, and the roundheads are plain people who's, you know, they're, they're the the ancestors of the people who in America today who pray, aw shucks, Jesus, I just want to say. And, and that's, there's those, that's a divide. That's, you know, it, it tore the heck out of everything. But then the Scots come down, and they've got a third thing, 
right? And they are motivated by, and so when the, when the English monarch, Elizabeth included, when, they, when the English monarch picks one of those or favors one of those or some amalgamation of those, the Scots have always got a third opinion. And so <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> there are so many religious sects at war with each other. I'm so greatly grateful for the First Amendment and toleration. Um, I, I, and we'll come back to that, especially when we get into the Civil War next week. But Dr. Arn, we got a pause on page 125. Churchill rarely quotes somebody at length, but he quotes Elizabeth I. And it's so fitting after Elizabeth II was laid to rest so recently. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England, too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. I always get a shiver when I read that. Yeah. Uh, Professor Jaffa kept that on his wall. Oh, you're kidding. In uh, ornate ornate lettering. And see, the moment when she says that, right? So, you know, she, she grew up under threat of execution. And she was at one point days from it. And then... Mary decided not to kill her, and Mary decided that in her own heart, and, you know, didn't really tell anybody. So Elizabeth kept waiting. Finally, she called for Elizabeth very late in her reign, and she asked for a pledge from Elizabeth that she would reign as a Catholic, and Elizabeth gives an evasive answer. Anyway, she survives all that, right? And now she's surrounded by all that mess, you know, I mean, a lot of people want to kill her and these religious and other kind and, and interest differences, right? So if you have an aristocracy and, and it's powerful and the British was powerful, then these are people who are good at power and they're always scheming, right? And she goes through all that. And then it's 30 years later and this big navy is coming against her. And if it wins, it's going to invade England and upset her and kill her and rule England. That is a decisive moment in her life. It's just whichever way this battle comes out, everything changes. And so that is the moment. She's speaking to sailors, mostly, and she's saying to them, I have the heart and stomach of a king. And she goes on to say, I will die with you here today. You see, that's a... That is a supreme moment in her life, and she found the language. And I, I keep going back and forth between the text and what it's teaching us and the author and what he's telling us about himself. Churchill begins this book prior to the war, prior to his recall of the admiralty and eventually prime ministership. He is aware of rhetoric even as a young man, but after the preliminary on this book, he must have been, I mean, he was a gifted orator, People still listen and get chills to Churchill. They, they work it into Foyle's War, which I've been watching. Uh, how much of his study of history do you think is reflected in his rhetoric during the war, Dr. Art? Uh, well, everything. He, he, uh, you know, he gave, uh, Churchill gave a lot of advice in his life, both written and reported oral, about how to write. And uh, a favorite thing he would say is, uh, read Macaulay. And once some young man said to him, I've read Macaulay. He said, read more Macaulay. Also read Kinglake. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, Churchill calls Macaulay a liar. Yes. And because Macaulay is, and, you know, by the way, if our listeners have not read Macaulay, pick up uh, 
you know, my favorite thing. You can read the great history, you know, of these years we're talking about. And it's, you know, it's wonderful. And it's beautifully written. And, and it, 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 uh, it achieves, amidst complex paragraphs, it achieves parallel structure. So it's even easy to read. Anyway, uh, go read his essay on Clive who founded the British Empire in India, because it's just awesome. Or his essay about the Reformation. Uh, And these are long, you know, they're not book-length, but they're long chapters, and they're they're published in periodicals, and they're great. And uh, I'll I'll talk about the one, the Reformation, because Macaulay, like Churchill, is very good at showing a dramatic turn. And then... He's talking about the Reformation, and the Reformation starts with Luther, and from the moment it started, you know, then for 60 years, everywhere it goes, it conquers. And then the day comes when it stops. And the reason was a man, Ignatius Loyola. Yes, the Counter-Reformation. Let me ask you, Dr. Ryan, have you ever taught a seminar on Macaulay? No. That'd be fun, though, yeah. It'd be, just you know, putting an idea out there. Just, just uh, you know, I, I can, I, I won't do it now, but I can describe there's a certain paragraph that Macaulay, and see, I started reading Macaulay because Churchill said to. <laughs> and so, and I'm looking for the things he's talking about. Oh, I haven't read his history in probably 30 years, and I don't know anything about this Reformation essay, which I now yeah. I've got to go find and read. Yeah, and the, the essays are are easier, right? I mean, because... You don't have to read five books. And uh, uh, the one about Clive and about how the British Empire got founded. And see, the British Empire in India. And that, that's, you know, the empire is an extremely important theme of Churchill's. Oh, and, in this volume. It's in volume two. It, it's the the world round, the round world, and how we got to America first, and how we got... The only thing we won in the war with the Dutch was New Amsterdam, which turns out to be a pretty significant win, Larry Arn. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we could give back to them now. It's New York, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> they don't want it. They don't want it. But uh, actually, most of New York is really great. Um, so, yeah, he's... And see, he, it's... Uh, you know, Britain, you know, became the most important country in the world for a long time. And if you, if you think about it, it's the same thing, you know, America. Maybe America's in decline now. I pray not. But the reasons for its ascent have to be real reasons, right? Things like that don't happen by accident. And so Churchill is a student of what makes Britain, Britain. And we come back in the last segment to talk about that under Gloriana. Elizabeth knew it, too. It's sea power. It's being an island race. Don't go anywhere, America. Dr. Arn returns. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Elizabeth I goes on and on and on. And it's a glorious reign, but there is no husband. One of her ministers that is left, Cecil, one of the amazing Cecils, says to her as she is wandering around frantically as she nears death that she must lie down. And she is replying at the day before she dies, little man is must a word to use to princes. 
Uh, first of all, she's not calling herself a queen. She's calling herself a prince in the way of Machiavelli. And it's a wonderful uh, closing curtain to an amazing uh, monarchy, Dr. Yeah, she, she wasn't, uh, she didn't go softly into that good night. Uh, she was a ruler. And she was. She had the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too. And uh, and see, that's not. People have to understand that uh, sex is a very important thing, and it's a natural distinction. But that doesn't mean that all the virtues are not present in both sexes. And that's you know Henry VIII's undoing was he had to have a son, and he. He had one. He just couldn't see her, and yep. uh, that you know, and that all, everything that went wrong. You know, I mean, it's not a good thing to go through life killing your wives and your friends, and uh, you, you know, you and and to, you know, he was besotted with Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth's mother, but then she had a girl. You know, the greatest English monarch. Uh, you know, in the time for all of the time that monarchs were really monarchs, the greatest uh, English monarch when they reign has just died, also named Elizabeth. But Elizabeth, an actual ruler, she just head and shoulders above above the rest of them. And, and, and let me close by asking you whether or not this hour we'll come back to the unification of the kingdom when James the sixth of Scotland becomes James the first of England next week. But when Elizabeth leaves, all is in doubt. I mean, it's the Tudors reign with some house guards and and just being purposeful and present. But she did build that navy, and we talked about it last segment. Her her legacy is that we are an island power, and we'd better be able to repel armadas. And boy, does that come handy in the Napoleonic Wars and in the war with Hitler. That's the key legacy of all the Tudors, right? Because... It became a much greater trading and naval nation under all of them, and yes. mostly under her. But that, but she was continuing policies that her father and grandfather had begun, and and that you know that was that worked right, and it worked because we live in a fallen and controversial world, and we need to be good to live happily, but also we need power to live happily. And how do you get power in a way that doesn't corrupt you? And the answer is being a naval power is maybe the most reliable way. I want to close, though, by the decision to behead her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. One that she came to reluctantly, one which she instantly regretted, but one that she had to do or the history of England would not have been the history of England. What do you make of history's judgment on that decision, Dr. Art? Well, uh, I, I think... The right judgment about that is Elizabeth's judgment. It was a something, something she was loath to do, but she was trapped. And she was trapped because Mary is consorting with the French and the, and the, and the, and the alliance between Scotland and France and Spain is mortal threat to Britain. You know, there were, there were French troops on Scottish soil often in these years. Yeah. Mary, Queen of Scots, had committed treason. I don't think that's in doubt. Well, I mean, we have her letters. Right. <laughs> it, it, uh, yeah, and so, and see, and Mary, Queen of Scots, she was just doing what you do 
if you're born to those stations, right? And, you know, in, in a way, it's a curse. Some, sometimes they regard it as a curse. Mary, Queen of Scots, didn't. You have to do things to because preserving your life and preserving your power are very closely related things. And so, of course, she was writing to France. And she promised Elizabeth she wouldn't. Remember, Elizabeth let her live for a long time. Long time. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, she did. Anyway, of course she did. And probably Elizabeth knew she would. And if it hadn't mattered, you know, I believe that Elizabeth, Elizabeth was truly loath to kill her. And I think if it hadn't mattered for the security of the state, which was under the charge of Elizabeth I, she wouldn't have done it. I agree. And I, uh, to close, I encourage everyone. And the American culture is, is wrapped up in the Tudors. We have always loved the Tudors. But before you fall for anything on one of the streaming platforms, you go to a movie or you watch somebody play Elizabeth for the 40th time, read uh, Volume 2, Book 4, so that you will know of which they are writing, because there's a lot that's wrong about the Tudors out there, and there's a lot that's right. Dr. Laron will be back next week as we plunge into... Volume 2, Book 5 of the History of the English-Speaking People. You can catch up. You can order your Amazon. And remember, the great, the great notes on the English-Speaking People are available over at hillsdale.edu. Just type it in. Find Mr. Sturdy, Joseph Sturdy. What a wonderful name. His first um, contribution came out on October 3, so they're adding to it weekly. Don't get left behind. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.